Well, thank you, Rhoda. Thank you, Dorothy. Let's get to the word. Acts chapter 9 tonight. Perhaps Reverend P.J. Wade from Australia was right when he said about the book of Acts that this is the playground for the way ministry. <laughs> but you can work this book of Acts over and over and over again, and it's always enlightening. It's always invigorating. It's always dynamically inspiring. The reason is because it's so timely. It is just like as if it was written yesterday afternoon or this afternoon. And it is always current because it deals with the church. The book of Acts is the, the history of the rise and the expansion of the church. And as I have shown you from God's word, it is the book of Acts that's a transition between the Old Testament and the New. And this book of Acts sets like a, a diamond. It sets like a cohesive something between the old and the new to make it possible for us to understand the church. No person can understand the church and its operation without going to the book of Acts and endeavoring to master this and understanding the principles and the keys that are set forth. This ninth chapter deals with a man who was the most unlikely person to ever believe God's word. He was a person, if he would have walked into the average so-called organization or institution of Christian learning, they would have endeavored to lock the door to keep him out. Or they would have hired a bailiff to throw him out. Because he just wouldn't listen to a thing. He was absolutely opposed to everything the Christian gospel stood for. And he was an out and outright murderer. This man is the one we're going to be reading about tonight in the ninth chapter. His name was Saul. This was his Hebrew name. His Greek name was Paul. And in the first verse of this ninth chapter, we read, And Saul, yet breathing out threatening and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. You see, he was constantly breathing out threatening, and he stood against Stephen, who had been stoned, and it says he cast his vote against him. And the only way he could have cast his vote against him would have been if he would have been a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body of Judaism. There were 70 people belonged to it. It made up the ruling body, 70 of them. These 70 were mostly Pharisees and scribes. Most of them were highly educated and trained men. These men who ran the Sanhedrin or who, who were in charge of it were the ones who set the program. They were the ones who set the tenor of the religious attitude among the people. And here with the rise of Christianity, the preaching of the word of God, this had infiltrated deeply into the city of Jerusalem, and Paul was violently opposed to it, even to the end that he said he cast his vote. 
And this he could have only done if he'd have been a member of the Sanhedrin. And to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married and be a, a father. <laughs> I don't know the reason for this, except might make you a little more understanding of other people or something. But you had to be married or had to have been married and your wife died and you had, you had to have been a father. These were criteria. And you had to be over 30 years old. That's another one. I almost forgot that one. Because no one could be a member or teach until they were 30. This is why Jesus started his ministry when he was how old? 30. That's the reason for it. It isn't that he didn't know the word of God before this, but this was the custom, this was the law, and Jesus Christ fulfilled what? That's why he waited till he was 30. Wouldn't have had to. He could have taught him at 23. But he would fulfill the law. He had to obey it. Now this Saul was cast. He was threatening like Stephen was stoned. And he carried out the slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And then he went to the high priest, the top man, the top echelon of the religious world and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogue, that if he found any of this way, the followers of the disciples of the Lord, the way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So his whole purpose, his whole conviction was to go to the synagogues in Damascus. And Damascus is one of the great, was one of the great cities of the world. Do you know that it is still one of the few oldest cities of the world still in existence? Nineveh perhaps was an older city, but Nineveh is no more. But Damascus is still in extent today. And so he went to the high priest asking that he might get a letter permitting him that if he found any believers in Damascus, he might bind them hands and feet and bring them back as slaves to Jerusalem to be punished. Now get the picture of this mission. This man, is, is he sincere? You bet your life. Is he religious? He was fanatically religious. And he was absolutely convinced that what he was going to do and what he was doing was a credit to God. Verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. The text gives it that he was surrounded with a bright light. Verse 4. And he fell to the what? Did anybody strike him? Was he slain in the spirit? No, 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 no. He fell. He did it himself by the brightness of this light with which he'd been overcome. Whatever else may be involved, he fell to the earth. He was not possessed. He did not lose his consciousness. He was not taken over. He did not become a medium. 
This was this Apostle Paul. Later came to be Apostle Paul, but this was the man who had been out there persecuting the Christians, headed for Damascus, and all at once as he's going along, whew, there's that big bright light. This is in the category of what? Phenomenon. It is not guaranteed in the word of God that if you've been a murderer, or if you've been real devilish against the truth of God's word, that there's going to be a bright light from heaven to engulf you or surround you. Therefore, it's in the category of phenomenon. It is God's prerogative. And it said he fell to the earth and heard a voice. He heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? This is what he heard. This again is phenomena, phenomenon, where God speaks to this man. And he heard a voice. You might like to put this in your margin because the accuracy of this is unique because here the word heard a voice is in the accusative case. Now, this won't mean anything to some of you. It'll mean something to somebody else uh, because the accuracy of the word is at stake here in this thing because there are three records in the book of Acts as to this experience, and I'm going to read all three with you tonight and open all three so that you'll understand, I believe, every facet that's involved in it. He heard a voice. The word for voice is most interesting. How do you spell phone? That's the word that's used for voice. This is where we got the word Telephone. The word phone, P-H-O-N-E. Phone is the Greek word, but it's spelled just exactly P-H-O-N-E, just like you spell phone. Only it's a long O and a long E. This was this is what he heard. He heard a voice. We get the word phone from this English word phone is literally transliterated from the Greek word phone, P-H-O-N-E. Long O, long E. That's something. So when you hear a pe person's voice, that's what he's talking about. He heard a voice. But the remarkable thing about this word, heard a voice, is that he heard it, but none of the others round about heard it. That's the point. We'll see this coming up again. And this voice, which he heard, said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Isn't that something? <laughs> he didn't think he was persecuting him, did he? He thought he was doing God a favor. He thought he was working his way up the top echelon of his religious service. He was absolutely convinced he was right. And yet, the first thing, after he called him by name, he said, why are you persecuting me? Well, how in the world could he be persecuting Jesus if Jesus was sitting up there in heaven? The only reason it could be is because of what he was doing to God's people here upon earth, right? Sure. Verse 5. And he said, Who art thou, 
Lord. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. My, what a revelation in that word. He didn't say to him in verse 5, Who art thou, Jesus? He didn't say to him, Who art thou, Jesus of Nazareth? No, no. When he heard this, he recognized that it had to be somebody with great authority. And so he uses the word Lord. You know why this is so remarkable? And I wish some of you good students would, would, would follow up what I'm saying tonight and pattern this out in the Word. And when you get them all patterned, I'd like to hear from you. Because uh, it's remarkably interesting to me here. Because the Lord said, I am the Lord Jesus, whom thou art. It doesn't say that. No, it doesn't. That's remarkable. This is remarkable. You know why? Because he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am the Lord Jesus. No. Could he have said that? Could he have said that? Was Jesus the Lord? God raised him from the dead. He sat down the right. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And if you are born again of God's Spirit, you have to confess with your mouth, what? The Lord Jesus, never Jesus. And that is why it astounded me when I worked this particular verse. It astounds me from those angles. First of all, that Saul should immediately say, Who art thou, Lord? And that the Lord would say, I am Jesus, whom thou, what? That's remarkable. You know, the word Jesus is always associated with his humility, with his degradation. It's always associated with the shame that Jesus had to endure. Where is that? He was of no reputation, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself, where is that? The form of man. Remember that? Or is it in Philippians someplace? Uh, i got to find it. I think it's Philippians. Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. To what? Yes, sir. 2-7. Philippians 2-7. Fine. We'll start with verse 6. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of on the cross. Throughout the Bible, Basically, only devil spirits, people who were loaded with devil spirits, who were possessed, who were medium, 
only they called him Jesus. And the enemies of our Lord and Savior, the enemies, they referred to him as Jesus or Jesus of Nazareth. Every believer referred to him either as Lord or Master. I'd like for you to check it out, see if I'm not right in my working of the word in this field. Wherever they use Jesus, it's always associated with his shame and with his humility. And the devil spirits never spoke of him as the Lord or as Christ. They spoke of him as Jesus or his enemy. And here, when Saul says, Who art thou, Lord? The Lord said, I am what? What had, what had Saul thought of Jesus? He had been his what? Enemy. He thought Jesus was all wrong. And Jesus uses the very word that Saul had exemplified in his life and called it to his attention. I am this shameful one. I am this despised one. I am this one who has been humiliated, not only on the cross, but by you. What a tremendous revelation in that word. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Look at the Gospel of John. that tremendous, Mr. Banks? You said it. It's wonderful. It's the greatness of his word. The Gospel of John. I'll just show you a few. And you can go in your concordance this week. Give you something to do before breakfast. John, chapter 13, verse 13, ye call me what? Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. This is the testimony of Jesus himself. Verse 14, if I then your Lord and what? Master. How he referred to himself. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Verse 46. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I what? Say. Then by comparison, look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. Talking about people in verse 28 that were possessed with devils. Verse 29. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee? What? Jesus. Thou son of what? That's something. They didn't say, what have we to do with thee, Lord? They said, what have we got to do with you, Jesus? You humiliated one. Back to Acts chapter 9. 
While I'm thinking about it, better go to First John. <laughs> Tremendous how this Spirit of God works in a man. Chapter First John, chapter four. Beloved, believe not every what? Spirit. But try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into what? And they'll talk religion. They'll talk all the wonderful things of the world. But verse 2, hereby know ye the Spirit of God, even that Spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of what? But they will never say this. They'll always say Jesus, yes. But this is Jesus, the Christ, the one who was humiliated, but the Christ part is added because God raised him. He was the anointed one whom God made Lord. Verse 3. In every spirit, that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come. Now you see it says every spirit. I suppose you have to have a little better understanding of this than most people have. I am not a spirit. I am Victor Paul Werewell. I am a person. I'm an individual. But it says every spirit inside of V.P. Werewell is spirit. Two kinds. One is soul life, and the other is the new birth life. Now, by my new birth life, and by my soul life, by that spirit, and if you're operating with people who are possessed, or people who are medium, even though they are religious, you speak to them, and the response of that Spirit within them. Understand? The Spirit has to confess. And they never will. Because those spirits possessing them are what kind of spirits? Devil spirits. Sure. And when you talk to them, they'll never say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. They'll never say it. Is not of God. And this is that of Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Ye are of God. If you're born again of God's Spirit, you're of God. Little children. And you have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the what? They are, now here we are, those spirits in people who contradict the great accuracy of God's Word. They are of the world. Therefore, speak they of the world and they have a tremendous following because of what? The world heareth them. Understand a little bit now? We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. It reminds me of the prayer Rachel prayed tonight in this verse. Somebody. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Well, why stew and fret about it? I don't. 
Neither do you. If they'll hear God's word, you know they're God's people. And if they don't want to hear God's word, take the dust off of your feet and go to work on somebody else. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of what? And the spirit of error is that deceiving type of spirit. And really, technically in that verse, the spirit of truth is Jesus Christ who represented God. The spirit of error is Satan who represents the other side. You have both. And this is how you can tell whether it's the spirit of truth, whether it's the real McCoy, or whether it's the counterfeit, which looks like the real McCoy, but never is. Because the spirit of the deceiver, the spirit of error, is the spirit of the deceiver. And that spirit of the deceiver is a spirit who is called, top brass is called Satan. Then little devil spirits down the line. You know... While you're right here, go to keep your finger. I don't care where you, but go to Second John Epistle of Second John. Just don't get it in anybody else's eye. Second uh, John, you know, right there, it's page or so, verse seven. For many deceivers, that's the spirit of the deceivers of error we're talking about, are entered into what? Who confess not that Jesus Christ in, is come in the flesh? This is a deceiver. He's a deceiver. These things I was telling you about that I had read just this week in this category, religious, sincere, but sincerity is no guarantee for truth and being religious is no guarantee for truth. If they're of the wrong sorts, they are deceivers. Go to Revelation. You're close to it. <laughs> Chapter 12. Verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called what? And he's a spirit. And his other name is what? Which deceiveth, who deceiveth the whole world. That's the point I want you to see. You have a spirit of truth and you have a spirit of deceiver. The spirit of truth is in Christ Jesus. The spirit of the deceiver is in sin. And wherever we're off of the word of God, we've got to be working for the wrong soul. Anyway, should. There's another one perhaps in Matthew that we could just look up tonight. Matthew 24. Verse 24. For there shall arise false Christs, false messiahs, who are going to save the world, false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that it were possible they shall deceive. What? The very elect. Again, these false prophets, these false Messiahs, these false deceivers, are Satan sent to deceive, if possible, the very elect of God, to keep you and to keep me from walking in that abundance that Christ Jesus made available.
go back to Acts chapter 9. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? Verse 5. And the Lord said, I am what? Jesus, whom thou what? Persecutest. Now, people, you may make this record in your Bible if you like. If you don't like, it's all right with me, too. But from the words now, it is hard. Let me read it to you, and I'll tell you what's omitted in the critical Greek text. The following words are omitted in the text. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, comma. That's omitted. Most of the Bible scholars believe, the, the critical text men believe, that this section got here in Acts chapter 9 from the record in Acts 22 and 26, which we will be considering later. That in the, as the manuscripts went through the years, that finally they brought from Acts 22 or from 26, this which I have just given you is omitted in this particular section. And so it would read accurately from the text, verse 5. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. In the middle of verse 6, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice. The word hearing here is in the genitive case. A voice, a phona, same word. But they saw no man. They didn't see anything. They saw no man. They heard something. But the word heard is they simply heard it, but they could not understand what they were hearing. You know, it's like when you're together with a dozen people and everybody's talking at the same time. You hear 12 people, but you don't really hear anybody. If they asked you what was said, you couldn't tell them because you haven't heard anything. Yet you've heard the voice. That's the usage here. The record of this particular experience, as I said to you, is given three times in the book of Acts. It's here in Acts chapter 9. It's also recorded in Acts 22. And we want to look at it. Acts 22. Verse 6. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh or near unto Damascus, about what? About noon. Suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground and, I, and heard a voice, same thing here as in Acts saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Now here these words of Nazareth are added in this. I didn't think of this a while ago. Why should I? I thought now. But remember in the foundational class how I show you that they were ashamed in Nazareth of him? Because Nazareth 
was humiliated because of his humiliation. And they were sorry that he'd ever been born in Nazareth. So when they wanted to humiliate him, they said, well, that's a Jesus fellow from Nazareth, you know. Like they say, that's that Whirlwill fellow from New Knoxville. Sure. Or that's the Shrares from New Bremen. You know all about them. See, this attitude. That's why they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Same type of humility. Now, whom thou persecuted. Verse 9. And they that were with me saw indeed the light. The words, and were afraid, is omitted. These words are omitted in all the critical Greek texts. Were afraid. He saw indeed the light, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. Back in a while ago, it said that they did hear, right? Verse 7 of chapter 9. You see that. It said they heard a hearing a voice, but in chapter 22, it says they heard not the voice of him. And you know what the critics have done with this? They've said, see the contradiction? The Bible's not the word of God. Why the blessed critics never criticize themselves, I don't understand. Why always take a crack at the word? The word heard, not the voice of him that spake to me, is in the essence entirely different. They did not understand. They did not understand what they heard. They heard all right, but it's like I described it to you when I was teaching you in Acts 9 a while ago. They heard, but they didn't understand. That's the word that's used here in verse 9. But they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. Understand? Isn't that wonderful? No error in God's words, just an error in a human mind, that's all. No problem in the word, it's just working. And I said... What shall I do, Lord? And this is, this, uh, this is only in this account where he says this. What shall I do, Lord? This is added to. It's like the four crucified with Jesus. You've got to put the whole word together. What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. When I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. That's the record in Acts 22. Now in Acts 26. Verse 12. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission. Now there you have a Remarkable addition. He, not, he went to the priests in Acts 9. Desiring of him letters to Damascus. But Acts 26 tells us exactly what he got. He, he got authority. And commission. The word authority. I haven't looked this up lately. But you people may have some Greek next to your handy. I believe the word authority here is the word exousia. Any of you have it in the text? But I, I'm sure it is. I went to Damascus with the authority to exercise my 
commission. He was commissioned from the highest echelon to go to Damascus to exercise this commission. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Verse 13. At midday, the other in the other record it said at noon. Same difference. O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the what? Some people have said he just got blinded because of the rays of the sun. This one says it was brighter than the sun. <laughs> Shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth. In the record in Acts it told he did, but now here the record is they all went down. Because the light was so bright, they knew something of a tremendous thing was occurring. I heard a voice speaking. The word speaking in the text is the word saying. I heard a voice saying to me. The words and saying are omitted in every critical Greek text. I heard a voice saying unto me in the Hebrew in the Aramaic language, the word tongue is dialect. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, the goats. It's like a, the, the prick. The bishop explained this very thoroughly, and you can get this other places. You know, oriental custom. A man plowing with an oxen, Bible time would carry a stick with a point on it. And this was called a goad because when that old ox didn't want to move, you give him a little poke. Give him to works. And you know why it says it is hard for thee to kick against the goad? Because here this farmer driving that old ox along hold that right behind his leg. It's high, you know. Then when he didn't move like he should, he'd give him a little poke. Hurry him up a little bit. But now the ox kicks back against it. And the more the ox kicks back against that goad, the more the ox injured itself. The harder it got pricked. Boy, what a record. The Lord said to him, why, you've been just kicking against the goat. And every time we kick against the word of God, it's just like that. Because the word of God keeps prodding. And the word of God is our goad. This is the thing that keeps us moving in alignment and harmony. Keeps us walking. And when we kick against the word of God, do we hurt the word? We only hurt what? Ourselves. The harder we kick, the harder we get hurt. Look at that Apostle Paul, who was later the Apostle, but Saul. Look at him, how he had kicked, even to the end that he had people killed, murdered, slain. You think maybe there's hope for other people in this world? Is there anybody in your community who would be any worse? Cannot Jesus save to the uttermost? Amen. Boy, I tell you, it's a tremendous thing what 
our God is able to do in Christ Jesus. Wonderful. <laughs> and I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou art. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee. Isn't that wonderful? He's going to make him a minister and a what? Witness. Not a defense attorney. Not an arguing theologian. Not someone in apologetics. But simply a what? A witness. A witness is one who just testifies to that which he has seen, to that which has occurred, to that which he knows. He just witnesses it. Because people, you and I never, never need to defend the accuracy of God's word if we don't do. All we need to do is to witness to the accuracy of it. We need not defend it. The word of God needs no defense. It needs witnesses. It's when you try to defend it, then you're convinced it's no longer accurate. Truth needs no defense. It needs witness. And he said he'd be a witness. Isn't that wonderful? Delivering thee, verse 17, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes. How is he going to do it? His eyes have? No, he's going to do it with the word of God. And to turn them from darkness to what? They thought they had light, but as far as the word was concerned, those who thought they had light were still there. And he was going to send them to bring Light to those in darkness. They were religious, but they were still in darkness. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. But, there was a certain disciple at Damascus, not a bishop, not an archbishop, not a pope, not the president of any denomination, just a certain disciple, a, a believer, that's all. He had no ministry as an apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, or pastor. He was just a wonderful son of God, a believer, born again of God's spirit. And that's what made him wonderful. I know that all of you who have taken the foundational class know why I always hit this so hard. Because the teaching has always been that only Peter and John could lay hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter, of course, was the first pope and so the first pope had little popes or little people coming along, following him down the line. And this is why, even to this day, 1966, in many denominations, if they have the, the right of confirmation, who has to come to do the confirming? The bishop. Da, da, da. You know I'm right. 
And it's a carryover from that false teaching. Only the bishop can lay hands on them. This Ananias wasn't a bishop. Oh, no. He wasn't a bishop. He was just a wonderful believer. He was just a disciple. <laughs> That's right. His name was Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a what? Vision. Was he possessed? Was he taken over? Did he become a medium? No, no. The word vision is the Lord said to him in a vision by revelation, revelation in pictures, colored television, something. Sure, he showed him a what? A picture. That's the vision. When Peter was up on the housetop, he had a what? Vision of the sheep let down. He had a picture. Just like you sit in front of your TV and you pick up a picture. There it is. Now Ananias was sitting in his house brewing up a pot of tea. Something. Three o'clock maybe in the afternoon. I don't know. Maybe he was having some of these cookies. You know. Well anyways, I don't know what he was doing. But all at once the Lord said to him in a what? Vision. There it was. A picture. And you know what he said? He said Ananias. You know what Ananias did? He ran for the closest undercover place he could find, huh? No. He said, Behold, I am here, Jesus. Oh. You know, I've often thought about this when I read it. If the average person, the average Christian believer, ever heard from heaven directly, we'd have another funeral. Get scared to death. And yet the spiritualists expect to hear from their outfit. You bet your life. They expect to go to a seance and have a little table tapping. They expect some automatic writing. They expect to hear from Grandma Soloco. They expect, but you can belong to a believer's meeting so called in the church a lifetime and never hear from heaven. People, what's the matter with them? Is our God dead? He must be. Theirs isn't. Ours isn't either, if we believe God's word. And old Ananias, he may not have been a bishop. He may not have been a pope or an elder or anything else, but that boy was at least in the fold. And when he heard, when he saw this picture, this vision, he said, okay, Lord. Verse 11. The Lord said unto him, Arise. The reason I know he must have been brewing tea because he's sitting down. He had to be doing something. Because he told him to get up. The Lord said unto him, I hope some of you visitors in here tonight just understand me. The Lord said unto him, Arise and go where? into the street which is called straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Not just some any old Saul, but a certain fellow by the name of Saul whose hometown city was Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. 
and hath seen in a vision, revelation again, picture to Saul, a man named Ananias. He sold Ananias via the picture coming in and putting his hands on him that he, Saul, might receive his sight again. He saw this picture and Saul couldn't see a thing. How do you see it? Revelation. Revelation. You can close your eyes. There's the picture. Perfect. Technicolor, everything else, Kodachrome, have it. Wonderful. There it is. He saw Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him that he might receive what? Now comes a remarkable reaction. Then Ananias went to all the neighbors. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that Ananias went to the church meeting or any place else. Then Ananias answered the Lord. I have heard by many of this man how much evil is done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority, exousia, from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy what? You see, he didn't run around and say, well, I don't like the word of God. I disagree with the word of God. I think the word of God's wrong. I think the word of God's a bunch of lies. He didn't run all over the community saying that. When he, when he heard from God and he heard the truth from God, he didn't like what he heard, so who'd he go to? He went back to the Lord. He complained to management. Right. If you and I do not like the word of God, why run around to the neighbors and say, well, the Bible's wrong. The Bible's a bunch of baloney. It doesn't work. It doesn't mean anything. Why not go to the management and say, look, Lord, this is what your Bible says. I don't believe it. You might get a surprise. Remember a fellow by the name of Thomas once, remember? Old Thomas, they said to him, the Lord's been here. And old Tom says, no, sir. Unless I see the prince in his hand, I will not believe. A little bit later on, somebody walks in and he says, hey, how do you like this? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Remarkable. Isn't it just human nature that if we do, not, we do not want to believe something, then we always run around and tell everybody else instead of going back to God and saying, look, Lord, you wrote this. This is a bunch of lies. I have ministered to people who have said in my classes that was the first time they ever had a prayer answered. Why? Because it was the first time they ever came to God and said, Lord, you answer prayer and I'll prove it to me. I believe that's what your word says. If that's what it says, that must be what it means. Now, Lord, I want to understand Prove it. You see, then we get results. Otherwise, we just continue to live with the consequences of our unbelief. Ananias said, Lord, I've heard by many about this fellow. He's persecuted. He's murdered. He's done all of this. And now he's over here in Damascus and he's got the authority. He's got the commission to exercise this authority and to take all of us and bind us and bring us back to Jerusalem. 
Verse 15. And the Lord said unto him, Go. Green light. Go. He didn't say, well, think about it for another month whether you want to believe God's word or not. Once we have had God's word, we're obligated to do what with it? Believe it. Believe it. Pronto, immediately, right away, boom. Then, the Lord said unto him, Go, go, go. For he is a what? Boy, who to believe that I'm sure we wouldn't have chosen, would we? Now, he was the most unlikely candidate you'd ever want inside of an outfit. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel. And I tell you this tremendous. There are different kinds of vessels in the Bible, you know. Uh, there. In one, one place they translated vessel of honor and vessel of dishonor. Remember that it isn't really of dishonor. It's a vessel of less honor. All different kinds of vessels. This is still true in the Indian home. If you come in, they'll bring you a vessel that has water to wash your hands. They have another vessel that they use water in to wash your feet because they consider the feet will be dirtier than the hand. Then they have a vessel that has oil in it for a blessing that they pour on your head. Never put that in the same vessel. All different kinds of vessels. Some for less and some for greater. This word chosen here is the top. The best there is. Boy, that, I don't know if this thrills your heart like it does mine, but it surely must. That the Lord said, He is a chosen vessel unto me. He had been the poorest kind of vessel the world had ever seen. A murderer and everything else. And yet God said that he was a what? Not when he was down there, but when he got born again of God's Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. That's when he got to be a chosen vessel, not when he was persecuting the Christians, not when he was bringing them back in and voting against them to be killed, but now, when he's going to be saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, then he was to be a chosen vessel. God knew from before the foundation of the world that when the Apostle Paul would come to this crossroads, or these crossroads, he would believe. How he knew. Wonderful thing, people. What verse is that? 15. The Lord said unto him, Go that way for his chosen, to bear my name before the Gentiles. Watch the order. Before the Gentiles and what? And the children of Israel. Son. Verse 16. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's what? Wonder. And Ananias, verse 17. Went his way. Did Ananias have the information? Sure. And he got it directly from God. The neighbors didn't run over and say, Hey, Ananias, oh, 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 Saul's down here at the house of Judas, and I think you ought to go over and lay hands on him so he'd get healed. Huh? Uh-uh, uh-uh. The Lord told him first. That's always the case. 
The Lord told him. And when he gave him those instructions, he told him something that has thrilled my heart through the years. He told him that he'd be in the house of who? Judas. And I'll bet he wasn't at the house of Maggie Muggins. He was in the house of what? Judas. And I will venture to say he wasn't crying eggs. He was praying. For it said he would be what? Praying. Now I'll say something else. If there were 50 people in that house at that time, how many do you think were praying? One. Because he might have gotten the wrong one had there been 49 praying. Boy, you talk about God giving information, revelation, right down the line. How do you like that? And the same God who gave revelation then is the same God who lives within us, who worketh in us, who mightily do his word and his will. The same God. Remember it? Who worketh in you to will and to do his what? Amen. <laughs> Ananias went his way, entered in the house. And putting his hands on him, said, Brother what? Sure. God must have told him he's a brother. And you're not a brother unless you're born again. When you're born again of God's spirit, then you are my brother. You are my sister. I am your brother. Outside of that, physically I'm only brother to my brother Reuben and my brother Harry. And to my sister Seville and Liddy. I'm only their brother physically from my dad and mom. But I'm your brother. You're my brother. If you're born again, I'm your Brother, you're my sister. If we're born again, he put his hands on him and said, Brother what? Saul. Brother Saul. <laughs> the Lord. The Lord. The Lord who? Jesus. The Lord Jesus. The word even fumble out. That appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, as you were coming along, has sent me that thou mightest Receive thy what? Ha 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 ha. How, do you, how did he get healed? By doing one thing, what? Receiving. God had told him this man had come in there, lay his hands on him that he might receive his sight. And when this man came, whom Saul had seen by, re seen by revelation, he believed that God meant what he said and said what he meant. When he ministered to him, boom, boom, boom. He received his sight. He took it. The only way we ever get healed by the power of God. The only way. You've got to believe God's word and then you receive it. If you come up and you say, well, I'll try it out. Save your shoe leather. Sit still. Right. You only receive from God when we know God's word and we believe to receive. Right? The principles are involved. Receive thy sight and be what? <laughs> be filled with Numa hagion, no article thee. No article thee. No capital H, no capital G. The text is, and be filled with Holy Spirit. Numa hagion. Well, it just told us up above this that he called him brother what? So he must have been filled spiritually. For when Christ came in, we receive all that Christ is. So he was born again. He had been, he had received spiritually. But he had never made him what? Lord. He had never made him Lord. That's what he's driving us. And he be filled in manifestation, produce in manifestation the fullness of that which he had received spiritually 
and be filled with Numa Hagion, with the gift in manifestation. Because this is the only proof in the census world that you've made him Lord. Only proof. This is the only proof in the census world that you've made him Lord by manifesting the operation of the Spirit. One of which is speaking in tongues. Interpretation of tongues, prophecy, word of knowledge, wisdom, and spirit. Those are nine manifestations. But in the Bible, in Acts chapter 2, when they were born again, what did they do? They spoke in tongues. In Acts chapter 8, there are only five records in the Bible. In Acts chapter 8, Simon saw something. What did he see? You can't see spirit. He had to see what? Manifestation. In Acts 9 here, we have the Apostle Paul. And he must have manifested something because in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, someplace, isn't it? 14, 18. I thank my God, I what? Speak with tongues more than ye all. Did he speak in tongues? Definitely. Acts chapter 10 is the fourth record. The household of Cornelius, the Gentiles, when Peter ministered to them, while Peter yet spake, the Holy Spirit, Numahagion, fell upon them, and they spake with tongues. The other record is in Acts 19, where Apollos had ministered in Ephesus, and Paul comes down, and he says, have you lambanoed? Have you manifested anything? And they said, we've not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit, any manifestation. And Paul laid his hands on, and they spoke in tongues. Five records in the Bible, all five either specifically state or imply beyond a shadow of a doubt that when they became Christian, the one thing they did to prove that he was Lord, they spake in tongues. Brother Saul, born again, but not boom, boom. No Lord in manifestation. Laid his hands on them. I thank my God I speak in tongues more than what? That's what that verse says. That's what it's talking about. The manifestation is tremendous. <laughs> verse 18. And immediately there fell from his eyes as if it had been scaled. He received sight forthwith arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat or food, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway, and straightway, straightway, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the Son of us. That wonder, what a change in the life of a man. Some people think you grow into this, you know. Get better day by day a little bit. Uh, old Paul had to get born. And on the road to Damascus, he was born again. And in Damascus, a simple little disciple laid hands on him and got him healed and manifested the power of God. And when he was manifesting the power of God, then he had the proof in the census world, that he had the genuine spirit within. The manifestation in the census world was the proof 
that he had the Christ, the fullness of God on the inside. People, there's only one way men and women can be saved. That is, they've got to be born again of God's Spirit. Except a man's born again of God's Spirit, he just can't see <laughs> anything. That's Things of the spiritual realm can only be, be known via the Spirit. And if we ever want to know the greatness of God, we first of all have to be born again of God's Spirit so we become a brother or a sister. Secondly, we've got to manifest. We've got to get the proof in the senses world. You know, you can go through life and say, well, I'm a wonderful Christian. I go to church all the time. I go to prayer meeting. I go to Sunday school. I read my Bible. So what? That's good. Mahatma Gandhi read it too. So did Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and a few of the rest. That doesn't. Remember what the scripture says? Except they have Christ, they're none of what is. And the ministry of this man, Ananias, was to go down and to bring into manifestation what this man had received spiritually on the road to Damascus. And so God set him free by healing his blindness and by manifesting for the greatness of God's power. This is the message to the church. This is the way the church is operating. You and I give the word as God gives it to us. Just because somebody may have been a murderer, a liar, or a cheater, the worst person in your community, does not mean that God will not save you. Does not mean that he might not have a tremendous ministry in the body of Christ. You and I are obligated to be chosen vessels and witnesses. Witnesses of the power of God, right? That's the word of God. And that's a tremendous and wonderful word.